KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Hey, before we start, I want to say hello to my Uncle Homer and dedicate this episode to the memory of Jessica Lane Medlin Crick. 25 years ago, you told me the future was going to be boombastic, and you were right about it. We still miss you down here. Keep shining. Of course, I don't know about a real to real. Well, huh? Yeah, of course, I don't know about a real to real. I don't know if you do. Well, I do. Oh. Well, look, the tape is rolling right now. Can I get that? Can I get that? Can I get that? Can I have that? All right. Since I'm on it, it's a must that you buy the album. You're listening to the Parker Edison Project. Edison Project. Edison Project. Good morning. And welcome to the season finale for season two of the Parker Edison Project. Throughout the season, we've been subtly showing you how the tenets of black culture play out in real life. Episode one was art, two was symbols, three was geography, four economy, five community, six education, seven relationships, eight was laws, nine was about stories, and for episode 10 is health, mental health to be specific. I've been in therapy since 2019. It's been incredibly helpful. Therapy should be mandatory especially for men. From an early age, we're pushed to be strong leaders. Showing vulnerability disarms that image. Because of this, there are very few spaces in the adult world where it's safe or acceptable for men to show anger or unhappiness. This is especially true for black and brown men. We're rarely taught or given room to process our feelings. As a result, later in life, we're unable to metabolize traumas that we experience So they stay inside till they manifest as an outburst or an ache or a pain or a stress-related condition like insomnia or even worse, some odd addiction. I'm not alone in this epiphany. Art often documents the times. When I was growing up, rappers like Redman, Spice One, or Dr. Dre promoted the use of drugs as a coping mechanism. This evolved and exists in current times with new rappers mentioning pills, lean, promethazine. But there are signs that the tide's changing. Like Jay-Z discussed the merits of marital therapy in his 444 album. And even more recently, Kendrick Lamar's Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers, which speaks on the merits of therapy in the black community. A subject that inspires me so much, I hopped on phones to get more insight about it. Good afternoon, sir. What city are you in? I'm in Culver City, California. What's your name and job title? My name is Jared Morgan, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I'm doing this whole episode on good mental health. And I know you work with a special demographic. Who are they? At my clinic, which is Westside Family Health Center, I mostly work with Caucasians and and Latinx people. Some monolingual. I happen to be bilingual, speak Spanish fluently as well. In my private practice, I work with African-Americans or Black people, particularly adult males. I found you because I'm in therapy now. Let me ask you this. What drew you to work in this field? Short version, the pandemic. Long version, I actually will be 35 next week. And I have been in therapy since I was 12 years old with the actual same therapist. (laughs) My mother is a social worker. 
as well. And because of her divorce with my father, she always believed in mental health. And so at the age of two, I went into the sessions with her, even though I don't remember any of that. But she always told me that I would probably want to go back if I felt the need for that. So I identified that around the time that I was 12 and told her. She looked for a black male, given that that was an absence in my life. So yeah, I've been with that same therapist. And so always been open to mental health and therapy. And I was getting frustrated in 2020 because despite a pandemic happening, people of color and low-income folks were not prioritized, even in a pandemic. And they kept saying, the Black community is getting hit hardest <laughs> by COVID. And I was like, I my mental health was suffering during the pandemic, I can only imagine. And the clinic that I was doing my hours at part-time asked me if I wanted to come back full-time and I took it as a sign that it was time to go into therapy full-time. <laughs> okay. It's meant to be. Yeah. What percent, if any, of our mental health is genetic and what percent is a direct result of what we experience? I think that this is a really good question. The simple answer is we don't really know. We just know that both genetics and our environment play a part. We, I don't think we can ever sit and especially with each individual and say 70% comes just from genetics and the other 30 comes from their environment. You know, some people do experience you know, severe depression, and we see that it runs in their family. It can be treated both with medication and psychotherapy. Uh, we just know that sometimes it's heavy genetic and sometimes it's heavy environment. And let me just say like, particularly in like the black community, knowing that uh, so many of us experience this systemic racism, we have all this secondary trauma watching uh, our brothers and sisters get abused by the police and killed you know even if this is passed down genetically uh <laughs> then so much of it is also just environmental that makes total sense how do i know if i'm unwell mentally this is another great question i think it's different for all people really when we are utilizing bad coping skills when we are finding ourselves in less joy than enjoy, you know, lack of motivation might be a sign for some people using maladaptive coping strategies, like uh, utilizing drugs on a daily basis. Some people finding themselves treating others poorly might be another sign that they are not uh, taking care of their mental health. But again, it, it just, it all depends on the, the individual. And then also just a combination of all of those. I just don't feel well, <laughs> then we know that there might be something up. Mm, that makes total sense. Mental health is something that we can always and should be addressing, just like uh, the gym. You know, it, it's a maintenance thing. And so you don't always have to be mentally unwell to get a therapist or to prioritize doing things that bring you joy and are good for your mental health. I think if you're feeling anxious more often than not, or feeling down, sad and, and don't know why that those are pretty good signs that maybe it's time to go work with a professional we are in a pandemic and we are dealing with constant stress how how can the average person show up for change without burning out completely i think sometimes we take on too much and think that we can't stop 
but we really need to make take uh, create limits for ourselves. You know, some people do that by uh, limiting how much news they take in. Some people, you know, do that by um, just trying to do one little thing to add to the environment or, or to add to sustainability, like uh, maybe riding their bike one day as opposed to trying to ride it every single day, adding to that stress of getting up earlier and all this, because we, we see that some of these solutions come from the lens of the privileged. Um, so not everybody can just pick up a bike and ride to work every day. One of the problems is that we know that uh, Black people tend to commute longer to work because they can't afford to live where the work is. So how do you expect them to do just not drive? So, you know, finding ways to join in the effort <laughs> and having compassion for oneself and knowing that I'm, I'm doing all that I can do and accepting that and not taking on this weight of, well, I can't do it the way that they're telling me to do it. That's then taking on that guilt or shame about that, you know, or I'm supporting this company that has didn't do anything, you know, for Black Lives Matter or during the George Floyd protest that, okay, I bought something nice for myself. And that doesn't mean I'm going against Blackness because I did that. So finding ways to just be compassionate for ourselves and understanding that we are just human is a good way to care for your own mental well-being and all of this. That's genuinely helpful. That's a, a real thing that I'm trying to figure out is how to balance that out. I want to be a contributing member to society and, and use my voice. Absolutely. I, I feel the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. I know that you know, some of these methods are created when you see it created by non-black people we're not always in the room when we're coming up with solutions i feel you i feel you this is the inverse of a question i asked you earlier what does good mental health look like being in touch with oneself knowing when you're out of sync and having tools to address those out of sync moments having tools to address when you need to ground yourself and knowing what needs to be done for self-care recognizing when it is important to increase that self-care i think is what good mental health looks like because one can be anxious and experiencing more anxiety say during this pandemic but they recognize that and they're addressing it with their tools or working with somebody i wouldn't say they're in bad mental health just from this time that I've been sitting with you, I'm really impressed with your work. Are you taking clients right now? I am. Blended Roots Therapy, private practice with my wife. And our website is blendedrootstherapy.com. Give me your name one more time. Jared Morgan. Get on in there. Clearly, clearly, he's on point. Thanks so much for your time. So I really appreciate you. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. I think this is important work. Somewhere around the fourth grade, I deduced that I had superpowers. It was like the butterfly effect. I felt like a wave of my hand could cause a windstorm. I became so aware of my power that I was afraid of it. It caused me to stifle any of my emotions for fear that they would cause havoc. In actuality, I was growing up in a volatile and fiscally unstable environment where the slightest thing could throw it off balance. Now as an adult, I understand I didn't have superpowers. I'm an empath. And even as a kid, I was incredibly tuned in to what was going on around me. 
This is a quote. I hope you can understand why it brings me such joy to put these experiences in a healthy context for you. You are not causing the events you are able to predict, and there's nothing wrong with you. Your sensitivities simply allow you to know certain things that defy logic and the limited definitions many people have of what is possible. That's page 189 of a book I read this past spring. I wish I could have read that excerpt to young me. Let me introduce you to the person who wrote it. What's your name and what city are you in? Judith Orloff, MD, Venice, California. On this episode, the topic is mental health, and I'm currently reading your book, The Empath's Survival Guide. For the unfamiliar, what's the book about? The Empath's Survival Guide is a book for all sensitive, caring people who have open hearts, who are intuitive, and who are connected to nature and connected to people, but tend to be emotional sponges and take on the suffering of the world or of people and don't know how to set the clear boundaries so they're not on sensory overload or exhausted all the time. I fully identify with that. How did you discover that you're an empath and how old were you? Well, I was probably about seven or eight. I didn't have the word empath. I was an only child and I was very sensitive. I had strong intuitions. I had dreams that came true. I had, you know, just strong sensitivities. When I went in shopping malls, I couldn't figure out why I would go in feeling fine and I'd walk out being exhausted or with some ache or pain I didn't have before, anxious or depressed. I didn't realize I was taking on the energy, the emotional energy of the people in the shopping mall. And so I felt I was an empathic child, but I didn't have any label to put on it or any way to define it. So I was lost. And my parents told me to never mention, you know, my empathic or my intuitive abilities again. So I grew up ashamed of these abilities. And I thought there was something wrong with me that I had them, that I was too sensitive, that I didn't have a thick enough skin, that I didn't fit in the mainstream, that I would rather, you know, watch the moon or walk by a creek than go to a party, you know, that kind of thing. How did you accumulate info of such, of such an esoteric topic? To me, because I've lived it since I've been very little, it's not esoteric, it's mm. very basic to life and my, my happiness and my energy. Um, but I've, you know, I'm a psychiatrist now and I'm an MD and an empath, so I incorporate my, my empathic intuitive abilities with my scientific training and academic training. So I combine all that in my practice of psychiatry and in my workshops. And so you know, this is something that's very important to me to integrate aspects of myself and to bring in my sensitivities with everything that I'm I'm doing. And so this book, The Empath Survival Guide, is kind of a lifetime of accumulation of the skills I've learned and what work in my life because, you know, I've had so many challenges as a sensitive, empathic person getting overloaded by overstimulation 
you know, just simple things like, what do you do when you're in an airport and just things are bombarding you? How do you deal with that? You know, how do you deal with people who are, you know, strong, very strong and, and emotional and how not to take it on in my body? So all of this I've accumulated, you know, over many, many years of practice with patients. Um, and so I, I wanted to offer it to people. It's not an academic book by any means. It's a very personal book. And very instructive. So if you're absorbing the energy of other people and you want to enhance your creative, beautiful sensitivities, which is what I'm suggesting, I'm a champion of that. I've kind of devoted my career and my life to helping people develop their sensitivities rather than be ashamed of them. I'm, I'm experiencing that firsthand as, as I'm reading the book. <laughs> um, and actually this, this question is for me personally, I am an empath and I think I'm so sensitive. I try to turn off or dull my emotions as a result. Um, sometimes I come off as being coarse or unfeeling. Right. Do you have any advice as to how I can maybe better balance that? Yes. Well, it's so beautiful that you're an empathic man and empathic men have special challenges because, you know, they have a lot of them have been, I don't know if that's true with you, but have been bullied in the schoolyard, have, you know, have loved poetry and, and the woods and music and, you know, didn't like video games as much or being in large crowds or, or playing football, you know, whatever, you know, other non-empaths like to do. And so, you know, you're, you know, a beautiful example of a sensitive man, but, but empaths sometimes come off aloof. You know, I've been accused of that because it's like I'm protecting, I'm in my bubble, I'm protecting myself from all the stimulation that's coming out at me. And so it seems aloof, but it's not aloof, it's just protective. And so what you can do is, I don't know if you're at a point where you've come out as an empath, well, now you have with this show, but <laughs> I don't mm -hmm. know with your, with your friends or colleagues, if you felt comfortable sharing, you know, that, that you're an empath and what that means. Um, but you might want to, with those that, you know, are closer, you might want to say, you know, I need to take some alone time now because I have to decompress. That's a self-care tool for empaths. And it's not, I'm not rejecting you. I'm not, I love you. I'm, you know, I, I want to be my best for you. And that means I need to go in that room and put my do not disturb sign on and meditate and think or feel, look out at the moon, look out at the birds, do whatever you want to do, but don't have stimulation coming in. It's almost hard to do this interview because what you're saying is so applicable and it's stuff that I've fought with my entire life and never, one, never having this conversation, I've never in 44 years even come close to having a conversation like this. And wow. it's it's so applicable so it's almost hard to to stick with the the train of thought in this in this line of questioning because it's wow i'm really floored i'm really floored um, i love that i love that that you can say that i love that you're floored it's extremely exciting to find out you're an empath and that it puts things in place for certain people you know for a lot of people you know I got, i've received so many emails over over the years you know i am so grateful reading the empath survival guys i found out i'm an empath i never knew what i was i always thought i was strange or weird or something wrong with me or psychotic or antisocial or whatever all the labels that that come in with um 
just not just having a different level of sensitivity. And as a man, we need you. <laughs> you know, we need to have sensitive men who are in their power. You know, it's a misconception about being an empath is you become soft or you become somehow not courageous or able to take a stand about things or and it's nothing like that. It's just learning to center yourself with your sensitivities so you can use them for the good in your personal life and in the world because we need empaths more than ever now. We need empaths in their power, not empaths who are just exhausted all the time and, and wanting to stay home with their animals 24 hours a day because it's too much to think of going out. And, you know, that's that's okay if you want to make that choice, but we need some of you to get out in the world now and, and you know, make this a better place. And empaths, because they have such big hearts and care so much, and that that's sort of their their downfall too because if they don't know how to not take on other people's anger or nervousness or resentments i mean people walk around they're like a field of, of emotions that can drain you just by going by them and you don't want to do that you want to be able to say i'm a centered person i am in my body i'm not floating around somewhere else i am grounded i am strong and i am kind and good and I can make a difference. All right, so it's um, the power of kindness, you know, and the power of strength that empaths have and the connectivity to other human beings. You know, empaths don't, they don't do us versus them. They don't understand that crazy mentality of us versus them. It's we on this planet. Empaths feel a connection to the earth and to humankind everybody because we're all human beings and we're all the same package you know and empaths know that that's not an issue for them it's not an issue of debate you know it's just i feel you know i feel you parker i feel my friends i haven't met you know who are maybe in ukraine or you know in in russia my friends in everywhere you know i feel them and i know they're there and you see when you're an empath that is a great source of knowing and power to feel that interconnectivity with everyone and not have to make it a big debate. <laughs> You're kind of touching on, you know, major world events. And that's something, especially in the last month, just zapped. I'm overwhelmed. I'm not even able to take in this amount of news that some of my peers are. Like, it's just too intense. Absolutely. To no, nor should you be able to. No, it's, I, I advise all my empath patients who are ad addicted to the news or tend to turn it on a lot, you know, not to do that. It's too much. Little mini doses of the news, that's okay. But there's one thing that, that as empaths, and certainly for me as a psychiatrist, to learn how to do is not take on people's suffering. As I can help anybody who's sitting across from me with whatever it is they're going through, if I'm absorbing everything they're, they're going through. I'm gonna switch lanes just a little because I, I found this book that you released maybe around 1996. And I wanted to know when you started that first book, did you foresee this as a career? That book was Second Sight, and that was my memoir about how I came out as an empathic, intuitive psychiatrist in a world of traditional science when I was terrified of what my peers would think of me. Did I foresee a writing career? 
All I knew was that I've loved to write since I was a little girl. I loved, loved to write. And my mother published a, a book of my poems when I was about 14. And, and she asked me if she could, and she did. And I said, yes, but I didn't realize the impact it would have on me because they were, you know, my first kiss, you know, my first this and my first that. And then she, she published it and I, I was so overwhelmed I couldn't write. For years, and it was just with this book that you saw, that Second Sight came out in 1996, that I opened up to my writing again, and I felt that that power. Like I, my biological clock was ticking, and I really wanted children, but I wasn't finding a mate, and it was just. Ugh. And but then my writing came in, and my writing took place of that creative energy. It kind of lifted my intense desire to have children, and I started pouring it into my writing you know and so did I see the 25 years of writing no but it would be what I would dream about and pray for and then I'm grateful for every day and I hope until the end of my life I'm able to write that I have the clarity and the vision and the muse is still speaking to me I don't want to stop you know but the muse has to come through you you can't just force it but I I've been blessed with you know, having a message <laughs> that I want to share. And as long as I have that and I know I can help people, I'll continue writing. When you step away from the pen, if you decide to, what's the impact or legacy that you hope to have created with your works? That's such an important question to me. You know, it's a very, I've thought about it so much. It's so important as I want the work to go on and I want empaths, you know, for hundreds of years to come to not feel ashamed of their abilities and be able to create a loving world because of their beautiful hearts. And if I can, I want to keep awakening people so they can feel the clarity and the happiness in their lives of being themselves and not having to feel like they have to fit in the mainstream or they have to be like anybody, that they could be their unique selves, empath selves going down whatever side path they're going to be going on. You know, the more the better. They don't have to go down the main road. They could go everywhere like a rivulet in the, in the creek, in the stream. Follow the water, follow the fluidity, follow the music. And if I can help people do that and learn how not to take on the suffering, because that's part of, you know, the lessons is not not taking on other people's suffering, including loved ones, you know, and, and also the ability to show empathy to yourself, because that's often the hardest. It's easier to care about other people and to be kind to even strangers than it is for ourselves. So that's part of the, the lesson, too, is not to beat ourselves up. You know, which everybody does. I know what they do. <laughs> I've talked to so many people. So it's okay. It's all okay. But you, you want to do it less and less. Thank you so much, Judith. Before I let you go, how can people get in contact with you or find more of your work? You could find the Empath Survival Guide and other information about empaths and intuition and my work at Dr. Judith Orloff, O-R-L-O-F-F. Dot com And my lecture schedule is there and I have online courses and I have all kinds of resources there for empaths and an empath support page. Um, so you could reach me at my website, drjudithorloff.com. I'm running over right now to get into this, this lecture schedule that you have. Thanks a lot. 
Okay. All right. Thank you. Stay tuned for more of the PEP. You are listening to DJ Rube. Yeah, it's me on Not So Serious Radio on KKSM AM 1320 in Oceanside, streaming worldwide. And here, right here in San Diego at PalomarCollegeRadio.com. And you can also find us on the TuneIn and Live 365 apps under KKSM. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team, Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. And now back to the P.E.P. There's a strange chaos that comes along with the music business. In addition to professional pitfalls, Fans feel entitled to critique or insult anything they want about you or your work. It's not a career for the weak. Both my first two guests expressed the importance of doing work, but balancing it with things you enjoy. I took that advice in choosing my third guest. I've always been a legit fan of his pen game. There's something bonkers slick about the way he flips his phrases. Just real stylish. Maybe it has something to do with where he's from. What's your name and what city are you in? I'm in Houston, Texas right now. I'm a, a New Yorker. I'm an East Coast boy. You know what I'm saying? North Carolina and New York. Born in Cleveland, Ohio. And the name is the artist formerly known as Fashion, the great Al Tariq. I've been a fan of yours 20 plus years now, man. Like, world's famous just floored me, man. Like, oh, man. classic material, bro. So you talking about you talking about beating up material? That might have been where I found you. Yeah, world famous, world famous. That's third of the trio. That's the EP. So you know what you you're not talking about twenty years. You're talking about almost thirty years. Yeah, because that's ninety four. So we twenty eight years deep on that. Ooh, how's it feel to have like a certified classic like that, man? It's nuts, man. Because the EP started out as like my solo album, right? And then um, I had been, you know, huffing around in the streets doing dumb shit that I didn't even have to do and caught a sealed indictment. So I had to go away to jail. You know, I had a one to three sentence, like one to three years, but I went to this thing called shot camp. So I got out in like 11 months, a little less than a year. So when I came home, Relativity had, you know, you know, they needed that product. You know what I'm saying? They had put money up. We had been recording and all that. So what they did was they took a couple of songs from what was going to be my solo joint and you know, made the EP. That's why some of the stuff I'm not on. So that 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 already set a weird dynamic to the group because it was it was the Beat Nuts were producers and they were producing the Chi Ali album. And they were also doing my demos for me to get a deal, you know, mm-hmm. separate and apart from that. When Relativity heard me on this song, Let the Horns Blow by Chi Ali, they was like, yo, we know every other artist on here. Who's this other guy? And I and what I was told was Chris Lighty told them like, yo, you know that's fashion. That's the dude that was writing a lot. Of, you know, wrote a lot of cheese album. He rhymes with the Beat Nuts, and they was like, wait a minute, the Beat Nuts are they a group? They not just producers? It's like yeah. So that's how we got a deal. You've worked with some real heads through your career, like some genuine goats. Can I just name a couple names, and you just tell me anything that comes to mind on them? Yeah, and I'm gonna add a couple too. Okay, let me let me ask uh, Fife from a tribe called Quest. Um, rest in power, man. Fife, you know, coming up as a kid, late teens, early twenties, you know what I mean? 
Tribe was like that gold standard for our era, as far as groups went. You know what I mean? They were just back to back to back, smash albums, classic album, classic songs. You know, I was around them, you know, around the same camp and all that stuff. And, you know, I was behind the scenes watching them. I was such a fan and to be working with them, you know, to be on a song with Fife and Dove and Drez from Black Sheep, it was crazy. And then to hear that song on the radio, it was nuts. So Fife was, you know, incredible. We had a funny relationship when we were young over some real dumb. Ish. I mean, I won't go too deep into it, but um, before he passed, you know, we got cool on Instagram, man. So that was real cool to have, you know, come full circle. It was great, man. Prodigy from Mob Deep. Crazy. That got hooked up because uh, Alchemist had did a song for um, my Missing Links uh, album. And that's me, Probs, and Black Attack, Sean Boston. And before we got to release the song, he took it and gave it to somebody else. I can't remember who it was. You know, at the time I was salty, but you know, knowing the business, <laughs> I was like, yo, come on, he gave it to somebody. I forgot who it was, but it was somebody much bigger than us. It was somebody big. His thing to make it up to us was he was gonna um, have Prodigy on a remix with us. Dante Ross hooked it up, paid that money, and we did a song with Prod, and it was crazy. Like, that's a crazy honor too. Like, I can say, I'm on a song with Prodigy, you know what I'm saying? And it's hard. It's a hard song. I'm about to re-release that joint, man. So yeah, that that was an honor too, man. That's like such a blessing to be able to have that on my resume that I got a joint with the God. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I was asking you for different names, and you said that you had a couple that you wanted to throw in there, man. Yeah, when I saw your list and you said the ghosts, I just knew you was gonna say like Kanye and Common and Fat Joe and Alpha the Cash. It was like Common B, Nuts, and Fat Joe. That was a DJ Honda joint. Then I got the other joint with Honda, I mean, with uh, Fat Joe, the remix to the um, Out for the Cash. Got a joint with Cuban Links, too. Then I got a joint that's like, somebody just brought this up to me today, man. I just started working with these producers my cousin Dr. Butcher put me on to. One of them brought up, he was like, yo, didn't you do a joint like Kanye's first, like, like real record that he did i'm like yeah 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 yeah. he got a joint I, like i met yay we had the same manager man i met yay he was probably like 18 years old man you know he was uh no id's pupil no id was my man too back in the day and did a joint with him on um this kid named gravity or brother named gravity's album he was out of chicago and we got a song called city to city on there for the listeners go look it up yeah. that's a playlist just just in this few minutes, you just gave a whole playlist right there, my guy. Right, right. right. A whole playlist. Mm -hmm. My favorite project, I love my solo album. I love the God Connection album. You know, parts of, of Street Level. I mean, I love Street Level. I love Street I can't even say I love parts. I love Street Level. I listen to it like, it's just, it was so much madness going on at the time with that album and the fact that we put our props over here that like soured me. I wasn't a fan of props. 
to me it didn't fit the album like it was chosen for us we didn't choose it we were kind of like forced to do that song so now when i hear people tell me yo man i remember props when it first came out and i would feel like yo come on you lying you just saying that people genuinely love that song and i'm like damn so i had put this negative spin on the song like yo we didn't choose this Tip and Chris Lighty chose this song. So, like, we were down on it. I remember going on tour. We would go to do all the mom and pop stores in every city that we would mm-hmm. be in, you know, and go do promotions at the radio. And as soon as we would walk in the store, walk in the radio, they would play that. Dish. Like, we were so down on it. But it's like people really love that joint. So that would probably be the only thing that makes me funny with the Street Level album. And now I've come to love Props because so many other people love it. And I'm like, damn, that wasn't my favorite song that I've done. Probably one of my least favorites, but it, you know, so many other people enjoy it. I have to embrace it. You know what I mean? My solo album, definitely. But if I had to pick one as my favorite, I would probably pick, it would probably be street level, man. You know what I mean? And this one B would be my solo joint. Hits. Definitely. Hits. Definitely. Are you are you originally are you Brooklyn or are you from Queens? Definitely not the BK. I love right. BK. My favorite rapper ever is from BK, so it's kind of hooked up, but you know, mm. I'm a Queens boy. Like Big J, you know, you got a lot of dudes from Brooklyn. You know what I'm saying? It's a lot of dudes from Brooklyn, a lot of groups. But if I had to go history, I mean you're talking about Run DMC, LL. You talking about Nas, you talking about Tribe Called Quest, Sand, you talking about Ja Rule and them. I'm not even going to like main sources and the large professors and Onyx. I'm not even gonna go there. I'm Bruh. just telling you like heavyweight heavyweights, man. You know, diamond selling artists with 50 and all that, man. Now what Brooklyn does have though, like I say, is they got the three amigos, man. They got Biggie, they got Kane, and they got Jay-Z. So when it comes to lyrics, it's going to be tough, man. We can make it a tight one, though. Because we could put Nas, G-Rap. Oh, I ain't even say LL. So I ain't even talking about one of my old classmates. You know what I'm talking about? With a 40-year career. I left New York after my ninth grade year. I got in trouble. I, I went to North Carolina. I had to stay with my grandmother and my uncle for two years. And I remember that summer, my 10th grade year, my brother came. And this is back in, this is 84, 85. My brother came to North Carolina that summer and he had LL's record. He was like, yo, Jay made a record. Cause you know, we was all in school together in a school called Christopher Robbins Academy. Yo, this, yo, that was over. You couldn't tell me I wasn't going to be next, bro. I used to be in that basement where he filmed. Mama said, knock you out a few times. And you know what I mean? Met his grams and all that. Deep history, bro. Deep history. You mess with the, the the majors. You've been indie. Do you have a preference between the two? Independent on my own, not even on indie labels. This is what makes it easy for me to do what I'm doing right now, right? To actually, you know, left music to be a father and take care of my kids. Nine girls and five boys, by the way. You know, to take care of them monetarily emotionally there for them, not just kicking out bread and they don't know dad, making sure that all of them were together because I was very out of, I was out of control when I was young. You know what I mean? I've been with my wife now though for 20 years though, over 20 years, going on 23 years this year, married nine this year. But before that, I was wilding out. I had my first son, I was 16 years old. This, the way the game is now, it has allowed me to take this long hiatus and be away, but now be able to come back because there's so many different platforms to get your music out. I don't have to go to a studio. I bought everything and I do it in my house, right in my closet. Being totally independent, 
where mm-hmm. everything I put out, all that profit comes back to me, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. me, I suggest that for everyone, man. The majors messed everything up, giving people a formula and like, you got to do it this way. And we want this type of music or who's co-signing you. Who are you down with? So it just, you know, the majors messed us up. We need to get rid of them, get rid of them. The ridiculous deals that you get on these major labels. You know what I'm saying? Where it's really like terrible bank loans that you're paying ridiculous interest on whatever money they give you. And I encourage every artist, don't sweat it. There are enough airwaves out there for you to be heard. Everybody doesn't have to sell 50 million records. I know a lot of artists, bro, that are living their best life, and you've never heard of these people, man. I appreciate that insight, man, because as someone who's been there, done it to the fullest, the music business is, is so much politics and paperwork. How, how did you yourself keep yourself in a space ready to create? I learned the hard way, man. And when I tell you the hard way, the hard way, when you go and find out that somebody has collected, you know, six figures of money that should have been yours from ASCAP and there's nothing that you can do about it, you start following up and finding out how did that happen? Like, how did I miss out on that? Like, that would have changed. You talking about life changing money. So when I was young, I really was not business savvy. I really wasn't thinking about that. All I thought about and all I envisioned for myself was fame and girls. That's all I saw is like me performing on our, you know, our senior hall show or living color and the girls I was going to see after that. I never pictured even money, bro. Through some bad mistakes I made, I, I, you know, I got the lessons the hard way, man. With, with everything that's gone on, how have you managed to maintain your sanity and stay so down to earth? My family, man, my wife, you know, my family, my kids and stuff, they were young you know, when I was really doing my thing, you know, early 90s to the late 90s and all that stuff. They know that, you know, all that alterique and fashion, all that now is crazy because my kids have discovered over the years, you know, I've gotten those phone calls, you know what I mean? Like, yo, dad, I didn't know you did. You did. Right. I'm with my friend, Joe, I didn't know. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, they keep me down to earth because I'm dad, man. It's like, yo, you know, I'm a father. I got responsibilities. I have people's lives that, you know, I have to help guide and direct. So having all of that, that has also made me more business savvy, made me more on point with, you know, things where, you know, money is concerned. But uh, family, my wife and my kids is what keeps me grounded, man. I'm so, so appreciative, man, that you you took this time. Let me just ask you this last question. I'm going to close up entirely. For the new head that needs to get familiar, give me one track that they need to go to ASAP as soon as this interview is over and get familiar with. Go to the Kanye joint. Go to that city to city, man. I burnt that up. Go to that city to city. Kanye uh, production produced um gravity's album check them out grab is a beast too i hope i'm introducing you guys to a, an incredible in- mc uh by the name of gravity out of chicago so check that out if you want to check something out man there will be uh, a follow-up project i'm working on it right now to um the god connection album the god connection album was actually just re-released by a company in europe they just released it on vinyl cd and cassette Um, I just signed that deal in February, so that'll be out and they'll be advertising that like around August, September. And then the Godly part one and part two 
or the follow-ups to my solo album, man. So be on the lookout for that. If you check my Instagram, it's Tony Smalls, is Al Tariq, is Cool Ass Fash. Thank you so much for this, my man, Mr. Parker Edison. Thank you, brother. Thank, Thank you, you very much, man. Appreciate you, man. Have a fantastic day. You too, King. Be easy, man. Peace. Oof. I'm not about to say anything right now. I'm just going to let you sit in that vibe for a second. Hey, Chris, let's run a little of that city to city and take them to commercial. From city to city, we connect. From now on to shop. From shop back to now on. Yo, we do we rap? No doubt, yo, check. BC, and the guard connect. Allah, who I fought to reek out rock star type of status. And ain't no semi in my degree. And when I break down these rap maggots like mathematics, static, don't we won't have it last days. I'm getting tragic like I'm GOD sending brother COD arriving. Stay tuned for more of the PEP. What's up, PEP fam? This is Kill C. Ray, editor of the Parker Edison Project. I want you to check out my show, Chris Sees the Internet, live Sundays at 7 p.m. on the Platform Collection page at YouTube. We talk about culture, art, tech, and do in-depth interviews with our favorite forward thinkers. Chris Sees the Internet, hosted by myself and OG Hip Hop Eddie, Sundays, 7 p.m. on YouTube, Platform Collection. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. And now back to the PEP. PEP. This episode is about mental health. The professions with the highest suicide rates are veterinarians, doctors, police, lawyers, and dentists. It's because they spend their days trying to fix people's problems. It's easy to be so caught up in our experiences that we lose sight of how constant tragedy day in and day out might negatively affect people in these fields. Want to do something about it? Go out today, get a six pack of beer and give it to your garbage man or woman that works your neighborhood. Fill out a thank you card and randomly give it to your mailman. Bring your dentist flowers or your vet a bottle of wine after your next visit. Thank the people who keep your world going because that's what saves lives, feeling seen, feeling valued. This is one more quote. The planet does not need more successful people. The planet desperately needs more peacemakers, healers, restorers, storytellers, and lovers of all kinds. It needs more people to live well in their places. It needs people with moral courage, willing to join the struggle to make the world habitable and humane. And these qualities have little to do with success as our culture defines it. That's page 209 from the Empath Survival Guide, and I'm reading it because I agree with it. If you'd like to learn more about anything you've heard, here's some books you might find helpful. The Untethered Soul by Michael Allen Singer, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, and Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. I want to close this season with something that just makes me happy. And if you like music like I like music, I think it'll do the same for you. Ladies and gentlemen, about to have a moment. Turn your radios up for Dev Love. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Thanks for stopping in. The Parker Edison Project is produced and hosted by yours truly, Parker Edison, and the good people at Platform Collection. Be sure to subscribe and catch the next episode on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any comments or questions, visit theparkeredisonproject.com or hit us on Instagram at the PE Project. My guy, Kurt Conan, is audio production manager. Lisa J. Morissette is operations manager, and John Decker is associate general manager for content. This programming is made possible in part by the KPBS Explore Content Fund. I love saying that because it reminds me of Sesame Street. Y'all stay safe out there. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu.